Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here. Hope you're doing good. Today I've got a very interesting interview with my new friend, Howard Rheingold. Howard is a techno-social forecaster, you could say. He has been studying how our social interactions, how our communities will be affected by the internet and by technology at large. He has been doing this for 50 years, literally. Uh, His first writings on this subject predate the official date of the internet, which is interesting. He actually wrote his first article on how computerized um, communications and forums, that those kinds of technologies would integrate into our social spheres. He wrote his first one in 1987, the year before I was born. So Howard's been at this for a long time. In 2012, he wrote the book NetSmart, How to Thrive Online, and we definitely talk about a lot of that stuff today. So he has a very nuanced uh, perspective. I appreciate that a lot. So if you guys like this podcast, consider donating. That is paypal.me slash airy in the air. Also, I need some five-star reviews. So if you're one of my fans, give me a five-star review. That really helps right now. Thank you so much. And without further ado, here's a little bit of music and my interview with Mr. Howard Rheingold. Geographically, where are you at? I'm uh, just north of the Golden Gate, San Francisco Bay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Where Beautiful. are you? I'm in Bend, Oregon. Oh, all right. Yeah. I uh, am a paraglide pilot and an action sports athlete. 
and I've been running this podcast for a couple of years, mostly with my stories uh, from traveling abroad and my sports, as well as interviews with different athletes who have interesting perspectives. And in the last year, it's really changed to kind of be my own ruminations and deep thoughts about relationships and communication and personal development. And then coronavirus has really flipped some kind of switch for me that is really uh, kind of given me courage really to kind of take on some bigger ideas that I'm really interested about and collaborate with people like yourself who I, who have interesting perspectives and ideas that I think are really useful right now. And the, um, I, I have looked into your work. I, at this point, I can't even remember how I, how I came across your work, but, um, I think you authored your first book on these topics the year I was born. So, I uh, I think that you've got a really interesting perspective having seen this from uh, kind of afar. I feel uh, at this point I'm 31 and there are elements of this kind of digital communication that I feel enmeshed in. And I also at times feel sick of, like sometimes I find myself looking at my phone in a, just a completely auto, like uh, just an automatism and I just like want to throw the phone and I actually used a flip phone for three years because I had just become so fed up with my phone staring at me when I shouldn't be looking at it. So um, I'm interested to hear the kinds of uh, things that you've been tracking over the years. Yeah, you know, I, well, we probably should just get started. And- yep, we, uh, I think we are. Oh, okay. You're recording. Yep. Okay. Well, you know, um, I wrote the first article on virtual communities in 1987. So I think that was before you were born, right? You know, a, a lot of a lot of uh, I, I taught uh, college students for for ten years at at, at Berkeley and Stanford, and and uh, you know, many of them thought social media started with Facebook. Yeah. Um, <laughs> A lot of them didn't even remember MySpace, uh, which was just a few years before that. And, you know, before that was Tribe.net and Six Degrees. uh, There were a lot of uh, attempts before uh, Facebook took it over. But, you know, when I started writing about um, what's now called social media in 1987, um, something called Usenet that had hundreds of thousands of people in like a hundred countries had been going since, uh, oh, I think probably around 1980. Uh, No, Uh, yeah. And uh, oh, there were uh, what they were called BBSs, bulletin board systems. At one point there were tens of thousands of them in the US. Uh, The Well, which I wrote about in in the book I wrote, uh, The Virtual Community, that was published in 1993. Um, I wrote my first article in 1987. It took me five years to get a book publisher because uh, they all told me that only electrical engineers were going to use computer networks to, to communicate with. So, you know, things, when things change, people forget uh, yeah. that things used to be different. Um, you know, someone said Te- technology is uh, anything that happens after you were born. 
Otherwise, it's just part of the landscape. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective. I think that we're kind of, a, that's, a, that's a blind spot that we have. So I, I heard you talking in one conversation that was on YouTube about the difference between communication and community. And I'd love to hear you elaborate a little bit on that. Well, it's, it's hard to imagine having community without communication. Uh, I mean, you could maybe even do it without verbal communication. Let's say you're hunters and gatherers and you're using sign language to, to coordinate. But community, it turns out to be kind of a slippery term. So I started writing about virtual communities, and I got a lot of pushback about they aren't real communities. And then when I started teaching about it, I, I did more research. And uh, there was a sociologist uh, by the name of George Hiller in the 1950s who searched through the psychology and sociology literature and found that there were 94 different definitions of community. So... To a lot of people, community means uh, something that warm and fuzzy that used to happen, but doesn't happen anymore. And in fact, the more I researched this, this is where sociology came from. In the 19th century, people were concerned that the age-old way of life of living in small villages and mostly being farmers was changing. People were moving to cities and they were beginning to participate in factories, and instead of having norms and traditions that were kind of enforced by the locals, people started adhering to laws and, and, and contracts. So uh, sociology was born uh, really when uh, a sociologist by the name of Tunney's wrote a, 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 about that, and uh, he called it Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft, which is German for community and and society. So there's, there's always been, um, at least since then, a tension between the way new technologies, you know, the, the printing press, the telephone, the television, long before the internet, changed how people interacted with each other. So what is community really? Well, it, it does have a few common characteristics, whatever your definition is. Um, it's a, a group of people who feel that they have something in common. So, you know, people talk about the gay community, for example. These may not be people who even know each other, but they, they have this thing in, in, in common, who communicate with each other. And I think it's, it's, it's past that. There are, you, you can see lots of, of networks of people communicating in a more instrumental way about, you know, uh, how, do you, how do you fix uh, a certain element? Uh, a lot of lore is exchanged among people who, who have similar problems, but you need to have what, what's called reciprocity. Um, if someone does something for you, you do something for them. And then in com communities, there's something called diffuse reciprocity. So I'm in this group. I believe in the group. And if somebody asks me for a favor, I will do that favor. Even if I don't know that person and they never did anything for me in the past, and I don't expect them to do something for me in the future, but I expect that, that when I've got a question or a problem, somebody else in that group will respond to me. So you've got people who have something in common who, who regularly communicate 
and there's some kind of reciprocity going on. And, and I contend that if this goes on long enough, people establish friendly ties. They, be, they become friends, even if they don't meet very much or, or even at all in, in person. You know, you see that these days in, um, in support groups online. Uh, if you have a, a disease or you're a caregiver for somebody with a disease, uh, you pretty quickly bond with a group of people who you may never meet but with whom you have a very strong tie. That tie may be stronger than the ties that you have with a lot of people in your, your physical community. So um, there are a lot of ways to communicate online and a lot of groups of people who communicate over time, but I wouldn't call them all communities. Okay. And I think that you're kind of, it's kind of leading me to this concept that I've been hearing a lot lately that is, you know, I think especially lately I've been thinking about our collective sense-making, our collective action in terms that come back to the Dunbar number, how many people we can just like kind of keep in our heads of these um, relationships that we have. And I'd love to hear from you your thoughts about what social media has done by diffusing this uh, Dunbar number or these like the strength of relationships that we typically would have in some kind of hunter-gatherer society, we would have um, very, very physical, very real, very tangible relationships where now, I mean, even in my own experience, I have developed friendships with people that I've never met and that who know me pretty well, I would say. And, but it's also opened up the ability to have very diffuse, relatively shallow relationships with myriad people. And I'm seeing now kind of people are realizing that and to come back into more resilient communities, they're kind of advocating for uh, a little bit less of these diffuse, shallow relationships online and a reacceptance and a rebuilding of these more tangible, solid relationships that are in person and uh, higher trust, higher bandwidth um, relationships. So I'd just love to hear from you kind of whether you think that is something that has developed through social media and what that's kind of doing to our just our general psychophysiology, really. Well, maybe I should uh, quickly define Dunbar number. Okay, great. Uh, Dunbar was a, um, a scientist who was studying primates, and he began tracking this, the, the size of, the, of the, the brain of the primate against the, the size of their, their group and found that there was a strong relationship and that for, for humans... If you followed his graph, that ought to be about 100 or 150 people, uh -huh. which turns out to be interesting because that's about the size of the military unit since, since at least the, the time of the, the Romans. Um, so about 150 people, according to Dunbar, is, are the ones that you maintain, can maintain relatively strong relationships with. Um, Another sociologist by the name of Mark Granovetter uh, came along and he wrote about weak ties and strong ties. 
So a strong tie is someone who you could move in with if your house burned down. Obviously, nobody has that many strong ties. Nobody has 150. So those are, you know, the, the core there. Weak ties are people that um, you know casually, uh, but don't have strong relationships with. Well, one of the things that Granovetter found was that uh, if you're looking for a job or a date, you're more likely to find them through your network of weak ties than you are through your network of strong ties. And then, in fact, um, people find it useful to have a kind of portfolio of both kinds of ties. Well, now comes social media, and suddenly we can have a, a kind of a new kind of weak tie with, usually your weak ties are with people that you may have met or, or have uh, some, you know, a, a second order relationship, like a friend of a friend. But now they're, they're people in, in a Facebook group or that you met through Twitter. Um, and that's kind of intermediate. And I think that that kind of changes the number number. And in fact, there's a sociologist in Canada by the name of Barry Wellman, who's done some research on this. And, and, and in fact, he, he believes that social media has expanded our portfolio of ties. Uh, it, it, it gets difficult when you try to generalize about what's good for people. Um, it depends on their circumstances. Uh, you know, for some people, let's say you're the only uh, gay teenager in a small town, um, or you have a rare disease, uh, it may be that without social media, you would have very few ties at all. Um, and with social media, you can have a large number of ties. Most of them would, would be characterized as, as weak ties. Um, but, you know, those can make a transition. You know somebody because you met them online, and after a while, you may develop a, a stronger relationship with them. And in fact, when I f first started researching this a long time ago, about the time you were born, it turned out that people um, would travel distances to meet face-to-face -face with people they only knew online. There was like uh, a Harley-Davidson motorcycle uh, news group that was Usenet. Um, so these are people all over the world, and all they had in common was they loved to ride Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Well, they, they started coming from Australia and England to have meetings in the United States, and, and you, you've seen that all over. So I think a lot of the old ideas uh, about uh, the value of our ties need to kind of be reevaluated. Uh, is there actual research that shows that having a lot of weak ties through social media um, alienates you? In fact, that's not true. Um, Barry Wellman's research, again, showed that, that, that people who communicate more online, um, in general, more often than not, also communicate more face-to-face. -face. Uh, so, you know, we've got a, a, a complex a uh, number of variables that, that have entered our, our social life, and it's easy to generalize about them, but you really have to look at specific situations. Um, I think, you know, one thing that we've learned is that not everybody is who they say they are online. And 
you need to learn to have some kind of reality testing about the people you're communicating with, especially if uh, you know they, they want to meet for a date or they want you to send them money. Uh, so I think there are phony ties uh, as well. And of course, that existed in face-to-face -face life, but it's much easier online to, to fake who you are and fake even your, your, your gender. So, uh, you know, in the early days, again, when I was doing this research, there were a, a lot of young women online were actually old men. Um, and you know what? There's something of a value to that uh, in the sense that uh, when I was doing my research, I would log on to a, um, a social site uh, with a female presenting name and, um, and ask for help about something. And I would get so many offers from men uh, to help me. And then I would log off and log back on as a, a male presenting name. And nobody wanted to help me at all. So uh, that gave me some insight into what it's like to be a female online, you know, something that we, we couldn't really do before. So people can explore identity and they can, they can also defraud people by disguising their identity. I think, you know, if you see a theme in, in what I'm saying is that uh, it, it's easy uh, to make black and white judgments, but yes. there's a lot of nuance and shades of gray when you're talking about human relationships, whether they're, they're mediated by face-to-face -face or online. Yeah, I really, honestly, I appreciate your nuance in, in the conversation. I think that my intuition is that the same kind of black and white um, decision-making or um, conclusions about this kind of communication has been going on since, you know, as every iteration of technology comes out, you know, like if people are texting and driving right now, like 30 years ago, that was like reading the newspaper and driving or putting on their makeup and driving, you know, it's, like human attention and the, you know, those are all just iterative technologies that, that we find problems in dealing with. And, um, you know, something I've been talking a lot about lately and wondering a lot about lately is just the information ecology and how it seems to me, especially in my age group, that people are, deriving the vast majority of the information that they get from one or two social media platforms, particularly Facebook or Instagram. And I would just love to hear from you your thoughts on the concentration of information that people are getting from that, the good and the bad. I quit Facebook two years ago. Um, for a number of reasons, uh, one of which was that I no longer wanted to participate in surveillance capitalism, in which every like that I, I uh, made, uh, every move that I made on Facebook or off Facebook was being tracked and, and turned into a dossier of information about me. You know, when there was the, the scandal a couple of years ago about the, the 2016 election, there was a company called Cambridge Analytica that yep. used information from Facebook to influence people's political decisions. They claimed to have 5,000 data points 
on each of the, I don't know, hundreds of millions of individuals that they contacted. And, um, and I, I just didn't like that. And the other thing I don't like is, is what I, I, I call enclosure. Um, you know, there used to be a lot of common land that anybody could graze their, their, their cattle on or their sheep on. And then landowners started seizing it and putting up fences around it. And that's called enclosure. But online enclosure is Facebook convincing, uh, what is it? I don't know, a billion people, two billion people, that Facebook is the internet. And this is how you have social relationships. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of usefulness and Facebook, but we wouldn't have social media or the web if it wasn't for millions of people individually inventing things, putting up their own web pages, creating search engines, uh, you know, uh, creating new ways to communicate. The idea that individuals could make their own web pages is kind of a minority view now, and that was everybody's view when the, the web first started. 1993, the, the, the web was first started in like 1995, 1994, 95, people started using web browsers a lot. It, um, it wasn't a, a corporation. It wasn't a government. It was millions of people putting up web pages and linking to each other. And now you've got this, this giant uh, company that makes money off our privacy that has convinced people that if you want to do it online, you need to do it within their kind of restricted or very restricted template. And I also, um, I wrote about this in my, my Patreon, Facebook groups kind of killed the art of the discussion board um, or the, the forum. It's really not a very good way for a group of people to have a, a, a conversation. If you, well, if, if you're familiar with Facebook groups, somebody will post a link or they will make a statement and then there will be a, a conversation thread that goes with it. That's great. That's fine. That's kind of the molecular unit of, of social communication online. But as soon as somebody else posts a comment or a new post, then yours sinks down. Well, if you've got 50 people or 500 or 5,000 in a group, it's, it's impossible to have a sustained conversation that goes on for days or weeks or, or months. Uh, you kind of get lost in the shuffle. Well, that was a problem that was solved by, by forums 20 years ago. A good forum knows what you have read. And when you log in, it shows you the new posts in those threads that, that you're following. It's not that hard to do. Facebook, for some reason, undoubtedly having to do with their, their revenues, didn't do that. Um, and in fact, I, I, I talked uh, with a group of social scientists at Facebook a number of years ago and, and criticized them for that, and, and nothing has happened. So as you can tell, I think there are a lot of reasons why Facebook is not a great idea. I use Twitter a lot. Um, I, I like Twitter, but you have to know how to use it. Uh, otherwise, it can be a hellscape. There's a lot of crappy stuff going on uh, on Twitter, you know, particularly for females. And Twitter doesn't really teach you how to use it. Uh, I wrote a piece about 10 years ago that, that I'm told is still useful called Twitter Literacy. If you, if you, if you 
search on that, you'll, you'll find this piece that I wrote. And I found it to be extremely useful for the things that I wanted to learn. When I first started teaching, I wanted to know more about other teachers who were using social media and their teaching. And I found one who wrote a good book and I found that he was on Twitter and I started following him. And then I started following the people he followed and I started communicating with them. I eventually learned from this group of educators that they call that a personal learning network. So you have to know who to pay attention to and you need to tune the people you pay attention to. If, if you're not getting value, you should drop them off your, your list. Um, and uh, you ought to know how to feed them. That is, before you're gonna, again, reciprocity, before you're gonna ask something of someone, you need to give them something. So I learned very early in my, my online career that the more I gave, the ten, I would receive 10 times as much. And I think that's one of the great advantages of social media. If you've got a group of, I don't know, 10 or, or, or 20 people who really know what you're interested in and you know what they're interested in, and when you see something that would be of interest to them, you send it their way, then they're going to send it back to you and you're going to get 10 or 20 times what, what you put out. But again, this is, this is one of the many things that people who've explored a lot know, but really isn't taught. In fact, over the years, as I've written about digital media and networks, I've received from, from scholars and from critics uh, and myself the question, is this, is this any good for us as individuals or communities or as a society? And, and I concluded, oh, gee, about 10 years ago that uh, it depends on what we know, that it's a matter of literacy. As I said about Twitter, it's true about the whole thing. Um, so I wrote a book called Net Smart, How to Thrive Online. It was published by MIT Press in 2012, in which I talked about five essential literacies, uh, starting with attention. Attention is the, really the, the basis for thinking and communicating. And, and I don't think anybody today uh, would disagree that our, our media, particularly the ones on our phones, um, are, are capturing our attention. Uh, even beyond our, our, our conscious control. Uh, the good news about, uh, and, and these days, attention is being engineered in that apps and websites make money by capturing and keeping your attention. So the people who design them are using the same psychology that's used on slot machines in, in, in casinos to, to keep you uh, interested. So if you see that little red dot, that means that you've got a new email uh, that, that induces you to go check your email. That's an example of that. The good news about uh, attention is that um, it is possible and, uh, and not that difficult to begin regaining some control of it. So I wrote about some of the science and then the second uh, literacy was, was what I called crap detection after uh, quote from Ernest Hemingway, who wrote that every good journalist should have an internal crap detector. We, I learned this when, when my daughter was in middle school and started using search engines. And I sat down with her and I said, you get a book from the library and you know that there was an, a, an editor and a publisher 
and a librarian and a teacher who were all gatekeepers for that information. You could pretty well trust it, might disagree with it, but it wasn't uh, false. Uh, now you can, you can ask any question at any time, anywhere, and get a million answers in a second. It's now up to you to determine which of that is good information and which of it is wrong and which of it is deliberate misinformation. Um, when I wrote that in 2012, I felt it was important, but now, of course, it's a thousand times uh, more important when there's, there's really a, a, a science of misleading your, your, your beliefs online. Then the third one was participation. Um, we wouldn't be here if uh, teenagers hadn't experimented in their bedrooms, uh, you know, with new ways to communicate and, and use the web. Uh, and then collaboration, so many different ways to collaborate online if, if you understand them. And then finally, network awareness, because we live in a networked world, and if you understand how networks work, you will do better. So uh, I think uh, our, our education system is a very conservative one, conservative in the, in, in the sense that it changes very, very slowly. Uh, and. Uh, our education system is, is not keeping pace with the changes that technology is bringing. So uh, it's, I'm a little worried about the percentage of people who don't know what they're doing online versus the people, percentage of people who do know what they're doing online. Wow, I think that's a really um, useful idea that I think that so many people do unconsciously use the internet and they, they, um, they're almost enmeshed in it, and it's an unconscious, completely unconscious response to what is there. I love this idea of five literacies that help people at least become aware of the tool that they're using and their own, you know, discernment and becoming aware of these things. I think that, you know, I heard your five literacies talk a while back and it just made me a little bit more aware when I found my attention just being so scrambled that I couldn't even read a, an entire article. And um, so, yeah, I think that's really, I think that's really helpful. Those five literacies are really helpful right now. Um, but I do want to go back just a second, what we're talking about with uh, Facebook. And there was an article that I read by Jordan Hall and he talks about the need for Facebook to actually have fiduciary responsibility, something like uh, a law or a doctor, uh, a lawyer or a doctor has to its client. And I would just love to hear from you what your thoughts are from the other side. Obviously, we have a responsibility as users to upkeep our own literacies and to be conscious of what we're actually doing. What is the responsibility on the other side of the network, the people who are creating these things, because as you said, these companies are using the best psychologists and the leading edge studies to hook our attention more, to make addictive products online, all these things that are pretty um, Orwellian. What is the responsibility of the people who are creating these kinds of products and platforms? Well, I, you know, I think the moral responsibility is that uh, you should um, do something about dangers to 
to the community and to individuals that result from from your your business. Uh, for example, there there were uh, genocidal conflicts in several parts of the world and in, in uh, Myanmar and Sri Lanka that were fed by um, you know f- uh, false information uh, on Facebook. Um, wow. There's a uh, immense trafficking and child pornography that takes place through uh, encrypted communications on Facebook. Um, YouTube, it's been shown that uh, their algorithm, which uh, is intended to keep people engaged, leads to more and more radical videos. So you start out with a uh, online gaming video and you end up being recruited as a a Nazi. I don't think anyone would disagree that, oh, and there's horrible, there are beheading videos and, and just, you know, har- murders and horrible, horrible things on, on YouTube and Facebook that they pay human moderators to, to look at and, and decide whether to censor it or not. Well, that creates two problems. One is there's so much more of this bad stuff than there are human moderators. And the other one is that these human moderators are subjected to this awful, horrible uh, sites um, day in and day out. And some of them are, are experiencing mental health problems. The problem with Facebook, um, it's too big. Uh, they can't. Uh, they, they can't protect people from the dangers that come along with the good stuff that you get. They never guessed that. I mean, you know, I don't blame them for that. Who would have guessed how horrible so many people in the world are? Um, it's it's kind of a a, a surprise, you know. Uh, people have, who go way back with the internet say, "How could we have have known how horrible this would be?" Well, in, in fact, it turns out that that when the internet grew from a group of enthusiasts, mostly in in colleges or in, in uh, companies, to include most of the world, it it exhibits human nature in in its uh, entirety. And it turns out that there are a lot of people who have bad intentions out there. What they, what what these online services do is that they amplify them. So I said before, if you have a a disease, you can, you can find a community of, of, of people who can help you. Well, if you have a rare disease and there's only one in a million who have this disease, well, there are 2000 others on online. If you were the only Nazi in your town, wow, you can now connect with all the other Nazis. Or if you are a child pornographer, you can connect with all the other people who are interested in child pornography. For uh, Again, you know, the, the, the rising tide lifts all boats. So if you're going to amplify human capabilities, you're going to amplify the humans who want to do good things, and you're going to want to amplify the humans who want to do bad things. But when you've got two billion of them, it's really difficult to censor it. So I, I just think that, that Facebook is irrevocably broken. Um, Twitter's begun to, to make some, some moves to, um, well, for, for example, around um, uh, the COVID-19 uh, epidemic, uh, they re- remove as, as fast as they can information that I think may be dangerous uh, to people. Um, 
which they're having trouble keeping up as well. And YouTube, I think YouTube still has a problem, but they are aware of of it. Um, but again, they've got so much traffic, it's hard for them to to do that. Yeah, and uh, what you're talking about, Twitter's new um, rules, guidelines that um, will remove any information that is not backed by an authoritative authoritative um, source like the CDC or the World Health Organization is uh, seemingly reasonable, but also has a really um, dark side to that as well. The flow of information being censored at any level is has a, a dark potential as well. No? You know, what if, what if, uh, what if people were given just a, some simple instructions on how to how to test information for veracity and a simple test before they join these services? Well, of course, none of these services would would ever do that because they're in business to make money and they they don't want to turn away customers. But I think the the problem, a lot of the problem, um, aside from the bad actors, the you know the, the pornographers and the the murderers and the Rest of them are, are are people who just simply don't know how how to test uh, the reality uh, of what they see online. You know, uh, Facebook has I don't know how many thousand groups of people who believe the Earth is flat, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, so again, um, my answer is always education to this because I I just don't see how you could fix this from the the other end. Agreed. But again, you're not you're not finding uh, kids in middle school who are certainly using search engines being taught how to use search engines. Maybe a few places do it, but we need every place to do it. I uh, I think it's a certain amount of education in middle school and and high school before you get to college certainly ought to concentrate on those those five literacies. And you know you don't. It's not rocket science. You don't really need to know a lot. You, you need to know a little and practice it for yourself. Hmm. Yeah, I think that what you're talking about, the discernment, the critical thinking to be able to analyze whatever information that you're taking in to determine whether or not it's, uh, as Hemingway said, crap or not, is really important. I'm curious if you think there's some kind of feedback loop at play here that is... Uh, did the internet, as we know it now, did it dumb us down? Did it undermine our own crap detectors? Well, I think that before the internet, people were not overwhelmed with such mm. an amount of bad information. But I also think, you know, more ominously is that both for commercial reasons and political reasons, there is now a real uh, concerted scientific effort to fake people out. Uh, when you see um, an election now, there is a uh, coalition between um, computational propaganda. That is, it's, it's micro-targeted to people based on their interests. Again, those 5,000 data points, they, they know 
what kind of message to send to what kind of person. So that computational propaganda times a network of bots that are just computer programs that, that retweet each other or, or uh, post, uh, repost each other, and human trolls, that we've got this very sophisticated operation to deceive people. We don't have a very sophisticated, widespread understanding of how to know when you're being deceived. And it's an arms race. And I'm afraid that individuals and democracy in general is way behind the, the forces of deception. I call it a disinfotainment. Disinfotainment. There's an element of entertainment in there. So are you suggesting that we like it? Uh, yeah, a lot of it is made to be entertaining. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 uh, I want to add that when I quit Facebook, I moved to Patreon. So Facebook's uh, business model is to collect as much information about you as possible. And, you know, it's not just what you do on Facebook. They follow you around the web. If you use Facebook to log into other sites, guess what? They're getting information um, from you. Um, if you're one of the millions of people who are using Zoom now, Zoom sends information to, to Facebook, or at least they did until that was discovered and they, they stopped doing it uh, a few days ago. Um, they make money by, by selling access to your attention based on what they know about you. And you, you don't get any money out of that. Patreon's business model is if you are a creator, so I make things, um, I write things, I do, I make art. Um, I, I put these things up on, on Patreon and there are a couple hundred people who pay me one or $2 a month to have access to what I'm doing. Their business model is people pay each other. Um, wouldn't it be great if the, if the internet operated that way and every time you saw somebody's website, you automatically sent them a thousandth of a cent or something like that. Um, so the, the, the business model is a big problem. And I, I like Patreon because they're, they reject that business model and they're, they're creating a new one. Is that going to work for everything? I, I don't I don't think so, but I think for creative people, it's a it's a great place uh, to to find a public, and and I think the difference between an audience and a public is an audience you just broadcast things to them, um, and maybe they buy them. Um, a public are the, they're going to pay you for things. They're also they're going to link to you. They're going to talk back to you. Um, they're going to argue with you. They're going to join you in, in collective action. So I think turning audiences into publics and, and turning the business model from surveillance capitalism to let's pay each other may not take over the web, but it's a, a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think I'm seeing the gift economy, especially in the creative sphere online, become the norm almost. Well, that's good. That's good. You know, because it's all started with the, the, the gift economy. It was just people would give information and their 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 works, their their writing, their artwork, their videos away to others for a lot of reasons to get get a reputation, which you, you can monetize, um, to find a community of like minded people, um, to reciprocate because they get a lot of good stuff online as well. 
this business model just sort of colonized that that world. Yeah, it's kind of, it's it's pretty scary. I think that a lot of people are uh, somewhat terrified of the gargantuan monster that Facebook has become and that Google has become and the just the centralization of these information sources, the centralization of these places, you know, as you talked early on about the different forums that you use early on in the web, you mentioned five or six and now there's two, you know, like MySpace is dead and Facebook is it. Um, what do you, what do you see in the, uh, the centralization of, of all of this and the, the lack of diversity. I don't, I don't see any way of really breaking that, but I do think that we have an opportunity to preserve, you know, what kind of an online green space, um, particularly now that, that that people are being forced to work from home and, and communicate with other people online. You know, um, there are lots of, in fact, I wrote a piece about this um, on my Patreon with lots of links, but you know, you've got, I, I would start with WordPress. WordPress is free and open source. Um, you can they can make money if you if they host your your blog uh your, your site or you if if you know how to do it or you know someone who knows how to do it you can download the software for free and install it on a server so you can make a blog um and there's a, a community of of uh, wordpress users who have contributed all kinds of plugins so you can make a a, a community you can uh, share your videos with your friends you don't have to rely on YouTube. You don't have to rely on, on Facebook. Uh, I'd like to see that community expanded. Certainly people in the educational community know about uh, WordPress. There are, 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 there's forum software, there's caucus, there's discourse. It's not widely known out there. There are people who are creating their own little social networks with their friends without it being a, a part of Facebook. So I, I think it should be encouraged for for people to experiment and you know and i think particularly young people in the sense that before the internet young people didn't really have a much of a voice in in uh, public media uh, they read and viewed what a few people broadcast but suddenly you know you saw you saw a tumblr with you know i don't know millions of people whatever your particular interest was you could post about it and other people would would reblog it or comment on it and in terms of education think of the difference between writing a, a paper for your teacher or maybe you get a grade on it or publishing something on a on a blog and getting people from all over the world linking to it and commenting on it so you know i think there's a there's a are some huge returns to people who learn how to use the web independently and use some of these tools. Again, that was one of the, the five literacies was participation. Participation isn't logging into Facebook. Participation is about creating your own blog or, or you know your own video channel. Yeah, I love that idea that we're actually not mandated. We're not stuck with the big monoliths that are there, that we have the ability to go out and create our own uh, websites and blogs. That's a, that is a, a nice little silver lining of this huge dark cloud that a lot of us are feeling like we're under. 
But Howard, I think we've had a great conversation today. It's been super helpful for me. I've learned a lot. And so I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Sure. Please plug my Patreon. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash Howard Rheingold, one word, H-O-W-A-R-D-R-H-E-I-N-G-O-L-D. Half of the, of the material I put up there is public. You don't have to pay a dollar a month to, to see it. Um, and uh, I've been writing a lot about the topics that we're talking about. Great. Well, I will link that in the description below and send people your way. Thanks so much. Sure. Have see a good ya. day. Thanks, Howard. See ya. Okay, guys. I hope you like that. Howard's got some really good perspectives. I really appreciate him coming on the show. You can find more of Howard's work at rheingold.com. That is R-H-E-I-N-G-O-L-D.com. You can also find him on Patreon um, and consider supporting him. I think he's doing great work. So check out the links in the show notes and you can check out more Howard's stuff over there. If you like this podcast, consider supporting it in myriad ways, such as subscribing, such as leaving a five-star review that I really, really need right now. Thank you for that. And consider donating. This is a 100% listener-supported podcast. I'm working pretty damn hard. This is uh, nearly a full-time gig I've got going on producing these podcasts, so consider donating. That's paypal.me slash Air. You can also follow me on Instagram and on YouTube and Gmail and any other thing. I'm Airy in the Air all over the place. So just breathe in. There it is, Airy in the Air. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you in the next episode. Peace.